The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. different kind of Bible study. And this morning we're going to begin a verse-by-verse, kind of methodical, step-by-step study of a book in the New Testament, and it's the book of Hebrews. If you, want to, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn there with me, find Hebrews. It's towards the back of your New Testament. I've chosen Hebrews for several reasons, but one of the reasons I've chosen it is because if you can understand the book of Hebrews, you can understand the Old Testament and the New Testament, and kind of how they collide together. So, so this study is going to be a little bit different than what we've been doing. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to bring a Bible that you can write in. Now, if you've got a Bible, and it's kind of a sacred holy Bible that somebody gave you, and you don't want to write in it, don't bring that Bible. Bring a Bible. You can buy it at the Bible bookstore. You can take one of those Bibles out of the rack if there's not one in the rack in front of you, it's because somebody in the last two services took that Bible out of the rack. And, uh, but we, those are, th- that'd be a gift to you. We'd love for you to take it. If you need a Bible or you want one, you need one, you can underline or highlight or write in the, uh, the margin, one that can be your textbook. I want to encourage you to do one other thing. Not only have a Bible that you can write in and underline, but I want you to take the sermon notes. Now, the sermon notes are, are they're just that big. They're that part of the bulletin. It fits in a three-ring binder that would be that size. And you could write your notes down each Sunday, put them in that binder, and when you got to the end of that, you would have your own commentary that you've written verse by verse as we study the book of Hebrews together. So that's what we're going to begin to do. It's a, it's a different kind of teaching. So stay with me, bring a pen, bring paper, bring a Bible, and let's do this study together. Now, before we uh, plunge into the book of Hebrews, uh, let me tell you a couple things about it. It's written uh, probably before AD 70. There's no reference to the destruction of the temple. The writer, speaking of the Old Covenant, would have certainly referenced that if it had been destroyed because it would have, it would have added ammunition to his uh, argument that the, that the Old Covenant can't save you. So it's written before that. It's written by a second-generation Christian. It's not one of the first-generation Christians because he talks about that this gospel was given to us by the eyewitnesses, the first generation of that. But other than that, we don't know who it is. We also discover that the book of Hebrews is not a letter. So many of the books of the New Testament are actually letters, like Paul to the churches in Galatia, Paul to the church at Colossae, uh, uh, Peter writes letters, James writes a letter. Uh, th- this isn't a letter. This is a presentation. It's a sermon. This is, a, this is an apologetical, here's why you should believe. And so I've, I've given the whole series a title, and that is Jesus Demands a Response. It's, it's the nature of who He is that you need to respond to who Jesus is. Billy Graham once said that uh, you have only three responses possible when it comes to Jesus. He said He was God, and He knew He wasn't. He could be a liar. He said He was God, and He just thought He was God, but He was mentally ill. That makes Him a lunatic. Or he said he was God and he really was God, and that makes him the Lord. But there are only three possible responses of who, who Jesus is. Liar, 
lunatic, or Lord. And obviously, reading from the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, the writer wants you to know he's going to make his case. And each week, as we study together, Jesus is going to demand a response from you. This morning, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is God. Turn with me. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, begins. It's one of the most eloquent introductions of all of the Bible. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of of the majesty on high. So, here's this beautiful, eloquent introduction. Before we just get into it, and we're just going to take it literally, phrase by phrase, let me suggest to you that the writer of Hebrews is writing to three different groups of people. First of all, he's writing to believers who are spiritually immature and intellectually uncertain. Uh, Maybe this is you. Maybe there was a time in your life, a camp or a vacation Bible school or a a study, or a television preacher, or radio preacher, and you gave your life to Christ. You asked Jesus Christ to come into your life and forgive you of your sins, but you never did anything with it. You never studied God's Word. You never got in a life group. You never got in a Bible study. You you often don't know where your Bible is. You never read it. You've never really studied it. And if somebody said to you, oh, the Bible's not true here, and the Bible has a mistake there, and this is where the Bible is wrong, you don't even know how to answer that. So you're saved, but you're immature. Later in the book of Hebrews, he's going to call you babes. He's going to say, you need the milk and not the meat. That's one of the audiences of Hebrews. The second group is unbelievers who are almost convinced, but are still on the fence. They're still noncommittal. There are many Americans, many Americans, maybe most Americans, who believe that there's a God, They believe that there's a heaven. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and they believe that He died for their sins. But they've never given their lives to Christ. They've never really given their lives to Christ. They they just kind of know the information, and they don't make that final step. Some of them say, I'm going to do it later. I'm going to do it after I get my life together. I'll, I, I'm going to do it after I get my career started. I, I'm going to do it once I go through this rough patch. Uh, I'm going to do it once we kind of get our marriage back off the rocks. I'm, I'm going to do it when the kids are a little older. We're all going to get into church. There are probably millions of people who are in hell today who are going to give their life to Christ. They believed that there was a God. They believed that He was the Son of God. They believed that He died on the cross for them. But they never came to the place where they committed their lives to Christ. That's one of the target groups. It's one of the audience of the book of Hebrews. There's a third audience for the book of Hebrews, as the writer writes. And the third group are unbelievers who are intellectually unconvinced, and more than that, spiritually apathetic. Uh, I believe that all three of these groups are in every one of our services. Every time we meet together on a Sunday morning in all three services, I think there are people who are uh, saved but spiritually immature. There are people who are right on the fence, who just haven't given their lives to Christ. And then there are people, the only reason you're here is because of your spouse, maybe because of your kids or because of your parents. 
and you really are unconvinced that the Bible is the Word of God. And, and more than that, you're not even, you're not even, you don't have a desire to become convinced. Spiritually apathetic. We, we live in a whole world that doesn't believe that God has any relevance in their life. How is God going to help me make more money? How is God going to help me get the promotion? Like going to church every week and just wasting an hour of a Sunday morning? Why would I want to do that? We live in a spiritually apathetic culture who really don't believe that the Bible is true. So we've got all three of these groups, and at different times as we read different passages of the book of Hebrews, the writer is going to be speaking to each one of those groups. As he begins, and as I told you, one of the most eloquent eloquent introductions. He begins talking about what used to be. He calls it long ago. He's talking about the Old Testament. And he says, in different times and in different ways, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. Now, we know this because today we have the writings of all of those prophets. We have Isaiah and Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel and Daniel, and we have the minor prophets that go all the way through Malachi. We not only have the, the prophets who were writing prophets, we have the stories of the prophets who don't have a book named after them. Elijah, Elisha, Nathan. In fact, the last of all of those Old Testament prophets was John the Baptist. He doesn't have a book written, uh, named after him or written by him. These are all men who spoke on behalf of God. In fact, it was a very serious thing to even be called a prophet of God. Moses writes in the law, if a prophet doesn't do this, he's not a prophet. If the prophet doesn't do this, he's not a prophet. And he tells us who to listen to. Remember several weeks ago when we were doing the, the Elijah principles? And, and we talked about that Elijah was on Mount Carmel. And there were the prophets of Baal, the false prophets. And they had this contest about fire coming down from heaven, consuming their bull or Elijah's bull. And when Elijah prayed, he prayed a prayer, and his prayer went like this. He said, Lord, let it be known today that you are God, I am your servant, and I did all this because you told me to. See, the essence of a prophet is that he only spoke because God told him to. And he had to speak when God told him to. There were a lot of times when Jeremiah didn't want to speak. He had, a, he had a message that was hard and a message of repentance and a message that people didn't want to listen to. But when God tells a man to speak, he had to speak. And in the Old Testament, that's the only way they had the Word of God. But then the writer of Hebrews says, this is what God used to do. But now, verse 2, in these last days, in the last dispensation, in the last period before the return of God and Christ, he has spoken to us by his son. So now we start uh, this, it's only in three verses, but it's eight points where the writer of Hebrews is proving to us that Jesus is God. He starts with this phrase, Jesus is the son of God. Sometimes as Americans, we don't, we don't get the import of this because we're such individuals. We think of ourselves as individuals. I have a father, and I'm his son, but we're separate individuals, right? That's the way we think as Americans. But to the ancient Hebrew mind, the father was intrinsic to the son, and the Hebrew families were welded together. So much so that if your father made a promise you were obligated as the son to fulfill your father's promise even if he couldn't. If a son made a promise, the father of that same family was obligated to fulfill that promise. They were, they were considered 
one. One in nature, one in reliability, one in commitments. And they were considered family, father and son. And so that's what we really read in the New Testament. We read Jesus saying in John chapters 15 and 16 and 17, I and the Father are one. Uh, When Philip says to Jesus in John 14, show us the Father and it will be good enough for us, Jesus says, have I been been with you this long and you don't even know me? I and the Father are one. We know from other passages like Romans 8 that it's not just God the Father and God the Son, but also God the Holy Spirit. There is a triunity, triune, trinity of God where Father, Son, Holy Spirit all together make up the nature of who God is. And so Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then the second phrase there in verse 2 is, and He's the heir of all things. You see, there's only one Father. Yahweh is the one and only Father. We're, we're told one of the commandments is to worship Him and Him alone. There's not two gods, three gods, ten gods, twelve gods, or, or with the Hindus, thousands of gods. There's only one God, and there's only one Son. The only begotten Son of the Father. So if you're the only Son, you're the heir of all things. And so the Scripture says that Jesus owns it all. Uh, sometimes you and I fall into this little trap where we think we own stuff. We say, well, that's my house and that's my car. But the truth of the matter is, you don't really own it. Not, not in the truest sense of possession. It can be taken from you. Your car can be taken from you in a car wreck. Just a good Montana summer hailstorm can demolish your car. What can you do? Can you go and lay on the hood and protect your car because you own it? No, it's not really yours in that sense. Your health is not yours, is it? Your health can be gone with cancer just like that. You don't, you're not in charge of that. You don't own it. But of the Scripture, it says about Jesus, He is the heir of all things. He owns it all. It's, it's a representation of the fact that He is indeed God. Well, if He's God, He would be of the same essence, the Son and the Father. He would be the heir of all things that the Father has. But he would also be the creator of all things. Do you see that there in in the end of verse 2? He appointed him to be heir of all things, and through him he also created the world. I want to speak to this very plainly. Some of you grew up, and from the time you were young, you were taught in school that we evolved. And you were taught that evolution was true, when in reality it's a theory of evolution. And quite honestly, it's a really bad theory. It's not the truth. You've been told this. You could try to Google it this afternoon. Just go ahead, give it a try. You can find no documented evidence that one species ever evolved to another species. Never. There isn't any documented evidence of it at all. And yet people will tell you, oh, yeah, it's true, it's true. Here, we can show you all the reasons it's true. You, if you can prove it's true, then show us where one species evolved to another. Now, I'm not talking about the microevolutionary things. Some of us in the room have blue eyes, and some of us in the room have brown eyes. There are different kinds of dogs and different kinds of cats. But a cat doesn't become a dog, and a dog doesn't become a cat. And just because you and I have different colors of hair, some of you don't have any hair, but uh, doesn't make us something less or different than human. Let me tell you what's imploding the world of evolution right now. It's the science of microbiology. You see, uh, microbiologists are the ones who do the work with DNA. And, the, and the, what we've discovered now that we can read the, the, DNA, uh, con, uh, the DNA cells in your body is that it would take hundreds of thousands of mutations 
that are virtually impossible for evolutionary to happen. You see, Darwin just looked at things from the outside in. He looked at the foreleg of a horse, the front leg of a dog. He looked at the wing of a sparrow and the wing of a bat. And he thought, leg, arm, wing. Oh, yeah, they could, they could be interchangeable. You could see how one could become the other. But once you get inside and you look at the DNA of that, you'll discover they're nothing alike. Darwin's science was flawed, antiquated, obsolete science that modern science has virtually disproven. The problem is, you're not going to see it on CNN. The ACLU doesn't want your children to know that God created the world. They want us to all think that we're products of chance, because if we're products of chance, there's no moral authority, and there's no one that can tell you what to do. You can just do whatever you want. And that's completely opposite of what God teaches. So 1,800 years before Darwin, the writer of Hebrews, speaking of who God is, says he's the creator of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. There was a big bang. The moment that God said, let there be light, boom, there was light. But God's the creator of the world. He's also, verse 3, the radiance of the glory of of God. We know something about the glory of God because once again we have the Old Testament. Remember what I told you? The, the Hebrews is going to connect your Old Testament and your New Testament. Well, the Old Testament word Shekinah was the, was the word for the glory of God. And the glory of God came down to meet Moses on Mount Sinai. And it was such a serious thing that God told Moses, don't let anybody else come up to the mountain. If anybody comes up to the mountain, they'll die. If your animal happens to wander up there, they'll die. Later on when Moses, who was seeing God, he would come away and his face would be shining because of the, the reflection of the glory of God. Now, it looks like my face is shining right now. It's just that spotlight right there. And I really do have hair. Look, it looks like a halo, but it's not. It's my hair. But in Moses' case, it was a reflection of the glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God guided the children of Israel for 40 years. It was, uh, it was a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it was the Shekinah glory of God. It came to indwell the tabernacle and later the temple. It was a real thing. But he says about Jesus, he wasn't a reflection of the glory of God. He was the glory of God. He was the radiance of the glory of God. Now, I got no way at all of trying to illustrate the glory of God except this. Go out on a really hot summer Montana day, no clouds, and stare straight at the sun. How long can you do it? You can't. And the sun is nothing compared to the glory of God. The Son is the creation of the Creator's glory. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And John, the apostle, as he would write his gospel, would say, and we beheld His glory, even the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. It's an evidence that Jesus is God. Jesus is not only the radiance of the glory of God, but He's also the exact representation of God. Some translations here uh, translate this, he's the representation of God. Others, like the ESV, say he's the exact imprint of his nature. Now, there's a whole bunch uh, that I could talk about, about the character and the nature of God, but I'm only going to pick two of God's characteristics. We're going to talk about his holiness, and we're going to talk about his love. And the reason that those two are so perfect to talk about is the holiness is the Old Testament picture of God and the love of God is the New Testament picture of God. And Jesus is both of those things. Let's talk about holiness for a little bit. And the best place to talk about the discussion about holiness is that you don't have any. All right? That's the best place to start. 
The Bible talks about the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They fall, we fall short of the, glo- the holiness of God. Everyone has sinned. Everyone's missed the mark. Now, sometimes the word sin in the Bible is the word wickedness or evil or iniquity. But most of the time in the New Testament, the Greek word is amartia, and it means you miss the mark. It's literally, a, it's literally a picture. The picture is an archer's got his bow. He takes his arrow. He knocks the arrow. He pulls it back. He lets it fly. Amartya doesn't mean he's so terrible he missed the whole, the whole target. That's not what the word means. The word means that he shot it, and as it came to the bullseye, just was a tiny bit off. That's what the word means. See, sometimes we think of ourselves and we go, well, I'm not that terrible. I mean, I don't kill people and rob banks. I'm not like a, I'm not like a Hitler or, a, you know, a Osama bin Laden. I, not, didn't, I didn't fly a, a planes into the trade towers. I, just not perfect. Well, that's the Bible's word for sin. You're not perfect. In fact, you're not perfect every day, Right? You weren't perfect yesterday. The idea of not perfect isn't like you sin one day. No, you're not perfect any day. In fact, you're not even perfect in a segment of the day. You weren't perfect this morning, and you, and you won't be perfect this afternoon, and you're not going to be perfect this night. You're in a state of imperfection. You're always not perfect. This is what sinfulness means. There's never a time when I am accepted by God because I never make perfection. I never make holiness. But God left the throne of heaven. And he became a human. Scripture says he took on human flesh, just like you and me. And when he lived this life here on earth, he was every day, every morning, every afternoon, every night, every hour, every minute, every moment, perfect. That's the holiness of God. Now, he could have lived this life and said, okay, now that's how you do it, and I'm going back to heaven. He could have done that, in which case we still wouldn't be perfect, because even though we saw how to do it, we couldn't do it. He did one more thing for us. He not, only, he not only took the holiness of God and represented that, but he took the love of God and represented that. And the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, whoever receives him, will not perish but have everlasting life. He died for you. He paid your sin debt. There's another place we're going to get to it here in this book of Hebrews where it says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Jesus Christ shed his blood. The the wages of sin is death. He died the death that I should have died. He died the death for me. He died my sin debt. He died your death sin debt. He paid the price for you because he loved you. What did Jesus do as the exact representation, the imprint of the nature of God? He took the holiness of God and the love of God, and he showed us how that lived together perfectly. The next phrase in verse 3 says that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. You see, he's not only the creator of the universe, he's the one who holds the universe together. The psalmist says that he's already named all the stars. It's not like Jesus uh, looks in his telescope and goes, oh, there's a a new star I just discovered. That's what we do. And then what, the other thing we do is when men don't know what to buy their wives, they, they name them something on that star directory. Have you ever seen that? But the Bible says that God's already named all those stars. Sorry, ladies, it's not named after you. God's already, he's named all the stars. The whole universe is held together by him. He sustains it. Let's talk about how many things he holds together just for us every day. What if, what if he just let go of gravity? 
What would happen to us if he just let go of gravity? What if, what if the magnetic fields at the poles changed? What if the oceans did really rise? What, what if the sun just cooled down a few degrees? There are a thousand ways in which life on this planet would be snuffed out if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus holds all things together. He's the creator and the sustainer. Now, that's a lot of power, but the greatest power is in this. He is the one who made purification for our sins. See, the greatest power on earth is the power of death and hell and sin. And he broke that. He broke that power by going to the cross. He did what we just talked about. He took the holiness of God. He was perfect. He took the love of God. He put that together. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death, a sacrifice for our sins. And in his love, he offers that to anyone who will believe by faith through his grace so that you can be saved. And he purifies us, meaning that when the Heavenly Father looks at me through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, He sees me as pure. He sees me purified. He sees me sanctified. He sees me holy so that now I have entrance into His presence by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus did for us. And the Scripture says here in this verse 3 that after He made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And my last point, really, the writer of Hebrews' last point here about who Jesus is, how we can know that he's God, is that he is the completer of all things. That's what that means when he sat down. He sat down because it was done. When he sat on the cross, it is finished. He meant that. Later in the book of Hebrews, it's going to say he's the author and the perfecter of our faith, meaning he's the one who started it, he's the one who finished it. He did it all. He completes it. And when he sets down, that's what that's a symbol of. We read in Philippians chapter 2 that he set down as a sign of honor. Uh, have you ever gone to a court? And the bailiff says, all rise. And everybody stands up. And everybody stays stood up until who sits down? The judge. It's a sign of honor that the judge is in charge of that courtroom. He set down as a sign of honor. He also set down, uh, 1 Peter 3.22 says, as a sign of his authority. He's the one who could set down. He no longer had to do the work. He had completed it, and he proved that, so it was a sign of his authority. He also sat down because his work was done. We're going to read this in Hebrews chapter 10. He rested from his work. The the writer of Hebrews is going to say, just like he did in creation on the seventh day, he rested. After it was finished, and he ascended to the throne of the Father, his work was done. He sat down to rest. And then fourthly, out of Romans chapter 8, he sat down to intercede for us. The Bible says he's right there at the right hand of the throne of the Father making intercession for us. Revelation chapter 10 says that the devil is the accuser and he accuses the the brethren before the Lord every day and every night. He's accusing us to the Father. But Jesus, the Son, is right there next to him and he's making intercession for us. So this is how it probably goes. The devil says, hey, have you seen Paul? Have you seen Paul Jones? Look at his life. Now, Jesus says about Satan that he was a liar from the beginning and a murderer from the beginning. But when he accuses me, he doesn't even have to lie, does he? I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of it, and I'm humbled by it, but I, I sin all the time. So Satan doesn't have to make anything up. He can just say to the Father, look at Paul. Look at Paul again. Look at him mess up again. Look at how terrible he is. 
He is wicked. He is amartia. He has missed the mark. He doesn't deserve you. He doesn't deserve holiness. And then when the accuser gets all done, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father, says, yeah, Paul's all those things, except I paid for those. I paid for that sin. He belongs to me. That's all been washed away. It's on me. I got his back. I've covered that all. He now stands perfect in your presence, Father. That's what he does at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Let me show you one really quick passage. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. I want to show you a mirror passage. It's, uh, it's very much like the first three verses of Hebrews. This is the Apostle Paul. He's right in the church at Colossae. I'm in chapter 1. I want you to find verse 15. Listen to how it reads, just like Hebrews chapter 1. In verse 15, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, in e- that in everything he might have the preeminence. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether I- I- on earth or in heaven, by making peace by his blood on the cross. Now, at the beginning of the hour, I told you that really the theme of Hebrews is Jesus demands a response. So what's the appropriate response? It's in verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in your minds, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. That's who Jesus is. Now listen very carefully, and I'm done. If you're sitting there this morning out of the eight points that came out of Hebrews' first three verses. If you agreed with any of them, if you agreed with any of those eight points, then you would have to agree with me that Jesus is God. If you, if you agreed that he's the heir of all things, well, the only one that could be the heir of all things is God. If you, if you agreed with me that he's the creator or that he's the sustainer, you have to agree with me that he's God. If you agree that he's the radiance of the glory of God or the exact imprint of the nature of God, you have to believe that he's God. And listen, if you agree with any one of those things, that he's God, then you have to agree with all of them. They all come together. God's not like, I can do this, but I can't do that. If he's God, he's God of it all. And so the writer so beautifully lays it out before us And if there's one of those that you go, well, yeah, I see that one, then you agree that Jesus is God. And if he's God, he's God of it all. And if he's God, he has the right, the power, the authority to go to the cross to forgive you of your sins, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Is it possible that you're here this morning And maybe you're one of those people that I talked about at the beginning. You're kind of sitting on the fence. You come every week. You maybe go to a life group. You've been getting closer. You've been thinking, yeah, I I think. Isn't isn't it possible that today's your day of salvation? Isn't it possible that today's the day you give your life to the Lord? 
You know that there's a God. You know that there's a heaven. You know that Jesus is God. This morning, you, you were nodding your head with me. You were looking at your Bible. You were agreeing that he went to the cross to die for you. So why not receive him now? Why would you want to put it off? If you're putting off saying, I want to, I'm going to wait till I get my life together, I want to tell you something. You'll never receive Christ because you can't get your life together. Remember, you're not perfect every day. But Jesus Christ died for you. And if you'll give your life to him, he'll get your life together. That's what he does. He'll forgive you of your sin. And he wants to present you holy and blameless to the Father. If that's you this morning, you could pray a simple prayer with me. Maybe it would go something like this. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. I fail every day. And I understand that that's why you sent your son to die on the cross. And he shed his blood so that I might have the forgiveness of sins. And so today, here and now, I'm no longer going to put it off. Today, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and come into my life. I choose you as my Lord, my master, my boss. And the best that I know how from this day forward, I'll live for you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. No one's going to come to you. I wouldn't embarrass you for the world. But this morning, if you prayed that prayer with me as I prayed it out loud, we just slip your hand up and you put it right back down. Say, Paul, I prayed that prayer. Yes, thank you. God bless you. Any others? Thank you. Maybe you're here this morning and uh, you're one of those people that you're still uncertain. I want to ask you this. Will you, will you pray a prayer? Maybe your prayer would go like this. God, I, I don't even know if you're there. But if you really are there, I want you to speak to me. Maybe you could come each week as we study Hebrews and just ask God to do that. Just say, God, if you're really there, I want you to speak to me. And the God who loves you said, if you'll seek, you will find. And he will reveal himself to you. And then the third group of people, if you're here this morning, you know Jesus, but you haven't been walking with him. You don't open your Bible. You don't read it. You don't have answers if someone asked you. Isn't it time that you make a commitment? Make a commitment to get a Bible that you will write in like a textbook for life and study and come each week as we study Hebrews. How many of you just say, Paul, pray for me. I've been immature, but I want to go forward. You lift your hand and you say, Paul, pray for me. I want to go forward in my Christian life. God bless you. God bless you. So many. God bless you. Father, you've seen every heart in this room. You know each circumstance. You know every journey. You know exactly who we are, where we came from, and where we're going when we leave. And we thank you for using your word. I believe your word when it says it never returns void. I believe your word when it says the Holy Spirit is our guide and our teacher. And even these who said, I don't know if you're there, God, but if you are, will you speak to me? Make yourself real. Do that, we pray, in a powerful, significant, and wonderful way. And for these who have prayed to receive you, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just concrete that decision. Don't let Satan steal it away. Don't let the doubts come. Even if life gets a little tough here in the days to come, Father, I pray you would just seal that decision and that you would do all this for your glory and your honor. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. In the book of Colossians, after this mirror passage from Hebrews that I just read to you, here's how the Apostle Paul sums it up. Therefore, as you received Christ, walk in him, being rooted and built up in him, established in your faith. 
In the next chapter, he says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Go in peace. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.